because of how this story was inspired to like actually be written as a children's book for me, its connections to present time were kind of its most important aspects. And I did feel like if I was going to tell their story, I had this greater responsibility because it's not my story to make sure that I was honoring not only their suffering, but the suffering of all the like 120, 125,000 Japanese Americans who are incarcerated with them. And I think one of the greatest disservices we can do to them is to pretend like what happened to them was an aberration. It was just like a little whoopsie doopsie moment in American history. And it's not, it's, it's very much part of a tradition. Welcome to Medium History, a collaboration between Wilkinson College of Arts, Humanities and Social Sciences at Chapman University and the curious minds at Past Forward. This series is an exploration of history through multimodal art and expression allowing us to uncover hidden complexities often overlooked by conventional textbooks. We observe visual material culture, that is the art, artifacts, music, storytelling, fashion, and other expressions of a particular time period, and consider its profound impact on our understanding of the past, going beyond mere dates and names to reveal the multifaceted layers of the human experience. It's about immersing ourselves in the emotions, opinions, and cultural subtleties that mold our world. In this series, we engage with authors, artists, and educators to cast a fresh perspective on the history of Japanese-American incarceration through the lens of creativity and expression, specifically the lens of the comic book and the graphic novel. I'm your host, John Baird Ingalls, and in this episode, we connect with author Maggie Takuda-Hall and illustrator Yaz Imamura, whose children's book, Love in the Library, exploring the budding relationship of Maggie's grandparents while incarcerated in Minidoka camp during World War II, garnered media attention when scholastic books required editing out any mention of racism or connection to current policies in the U.S. in their author statement. Thank you for listening. Maggie, I'd love to start by by finding out how much of the history of the Japanese-American incarceration did you know growing up? I know a lot of survivors didn't really discuss the experience more mm -hmm. than a mention, um, but were, were your grandparents pretty open about their experience or, or was it something that you had to learn about later? My grandfather passed away when I was a year old, so I never got to talk to him about it directly. So George, who's in the story, I, I never got to know. Uh, but Tama was a writer and my mother is a journalist. And so um, Tama did talk about it more than a lot of other survivors did. Like she wrote speeches and worked with other survivors quite a bit. But my mom was pretty adamant about keeping both my sister and I like very educated about the topic and um, in kind of an unflinching way. And so, you know, I think the story of how George and Tama met is a story I've always known. The full extent of incarceration and the lived experience of it is something that I'm still learning about to this day because of, like you said, like we didn't have a ton of stories about it all the time. Um, like I just read a book recently, Seen and Unseen by Elizabeth Partridge and Lauren Tamaki that um, had a story about a protest at, at Manzanar that I had never heard about where uh, three young men were shot and killed and I had never heard that story before and so I feel like it's a it's a period of time that I'm still learning a lot about right now yeah and we didn't have 
I mean, it wasn't taught in public education. We didn't talk about it. And there weren't children's books to my knowledge that, I mean, I was, it wasn't until I was an adult and working on these projects that I really got a full thorough education on what happened in my own country and in my own state of yeah. California. And Yaz, uh, growing up in the Philippines, I I'm not sure how much of American history was taught to children, but uh, how much of this did you know before coming into this project? I think I mentioned this a couple of times before when I was talking to Maggie about it. Um, we definitely have a more kind of idealized lineization of the West for sure. Like, um, obviously, um, the Philippines was, a, was also a very integral part of like World War II and everything, every effort that came from like looking like, like the Axis forces doing anything felt like it was all coming from a savior narrative. I think um, because we were also subjected to the cruelty of Imperial Japan when they were there. I feel like, I don't know, because I candidly mentioned it, this story to my father when he was still alive. He died of COVID a year ago. And he, so um, no worries. he, I told him like, oh, this is messed up, you know? And then he was like, candidly, he was like, yeah, you know, but it was a, it was a, it was needed at the time, you know? Like, I think it was coming from a place of like, the it was fear-based, like the Imperial Japan is such a, scary force like of course they'd want to sequester you on japanese citizens like i would do the same like it was my house that kind of like energy hmm. telling me about and um it wasn't shocking to me either i felt like um i'm pretty sure a lot of filipinos would share the same anxiety of just like how but at the time america definitely is somewhat as a place is a, is a is an entity that could be excused for a lot of things because they were also doing a much bigger good you know what i mean like like war is messy messy kind of quote unquote and and even even as I moved, because I migrated to migrated here, like I think almost eleven years ago now, even that the cynicism wasn't really there either. Like I never really have this kind of like obviously super idealized way of the way I look at America, but I think I it slowly became more apparent to me as I lived here because people are way more political here, and then now I'm realizing that I don't know we meddle in other places in, in the Middle East and all that, and, and then moving here. You do, you do kind of like look behind a curtain a little in right. a lot of ways. And, and then this doesn't become surprising anymore. And Maggie, along with the stories from your grandmother and, and the research that your mom did, what was the research that you did in putting Love in the Library together? I mean, the plot of Love in the Library is something that I've known for my entire life pretty intimately. And so it didn't require a lot of research. The research really came on the illustrative side to make sure that things were accurate to Minidoka specifically. Um, and Densho is an incredible resource for that. And then it was more like in the author's note and then for school visits that I do in conjunction with it that I did a lot of research to make sure that when I was talking about the circumstances for the story that I had all the details correctly. And that was a lot. Again, Densho was probably my number one go-to place for information, but also um, just going to like the public library and checking out books and fact checking things that I had assumed or thought I understood. And like, there were things that I had thought I'd understood from my entire life of knowing these stories, like Korematsu versus the United States. That was a Supreme Court case, right? And I was like, no, it went to the U.S. District Court. <laughs> and actually, when it was overturned, it was just his conviction that was overturned. The actual ruling was that it's perfectly in line with our constitution to round people based up on their heritage. And that was one of those things where I was like, oh, I see. 
I got very partial pictures of some of this story mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> as I was growing up. And it was as I was preparing to educate kids about it. And I wanted to make sure that I had the fullest and most honest recounting I could give them that I had to check, you know, my own against the stories I'd just been told over and over again that were apocryphal. And also to make sure that I wasn't just basing what I understood off of Minidoka because every camp was so different. And Yaz, I want to compliment, I was fascinated by some of the details in your art. Um, I loved the clothing and the style that you were able to capture um, and this this overall dusty palette of the, the desert. Everything felt dusty, it almost felt like dusty in its texture. Uh, but the the few images that we have from the camps are all black and white. So, so what was that research in in trying to capture that that feeling and that that time in history? I've never been given a book like this before. I, with an, as an artist, I always get like a it's almost like a funnel of like it starts really big and then starts to narrow. But I was too ambitious. I was like because I always start with color palettes first, and it's like oh. I wanted it to be eclectic and earthy. I think that's naturally my style, but I initially initially had an explosion of colors. I was like, I wanted purple in there. and But this is like a, a very rich tapestry of people with clothes and personalities. And I had to redo a few spreads as I narrowed down the style. I, I would finish a spread first and I, I would pick a, a, a part of the story that really encapsulated the, the story for me. And I think, I think it was the when she was waiting by the bus and they were all just in this standing there i had to do that like four times and i keep not nailing it i was like um i think the story tends to dictate the colors actually if i really listen to that would be the best practice i oftentimes i'm very stubborn like i i get inspired by color palette that i'm like raring to use for the next project even if it's not the correct project but i'm glad that sense does tend to kind of gravitate me towards like well let's not do this whole eclectic explosion of colors so i eventually started you know the library and how sparse it was to really kind of informed my decision. Um, there was a scene where they were playing baseball outside, also kind of informed it. So it's really like, just like a plethora of scenes that sort of just like, you know, if you're a kid at, at a grocery store and you're just like grabbing the marshmallows and you're kind of just like, no, kind of like process. Um, so it was a narrowing down of, mm. of, of things to where the muted, the muted and earthy was still there, but I still, but I still got to infuse the colors in the clothing. And, um, I know the pictures are black and white, but the fact that they were different families kind of let me know that it was a vibrant, vibrant is such a weird word for it. But, it, you know, when they were in a, they were sharing a room together, mm-hmm. different families, and then they would just pull up blankets. And these weren't like families that were used to living that way. And they have their own personalities and identities, you know, and they're not just this like collectivist group of people like Japanese, like they are Americans, you know. And so I thought of just like, I imagine that like, people would try to sequester themselves differently. And so, yeah, there's blankets and there's going to be just like different sh- shades and patterns and colors. And um, it's, I imagine it would be chaotic in, in real life, but obviously in the story, I wanted it to also kind of, I don't know, show my artistic style. So it's like, it's a weird balance to like not make it too like wistful Wes Anderson, you know, cause that was a very tough time too, but it, but it also needs to be, I guess, visually interesting to look at. You captured this other idea, though, that I think permeates through a lot of the stories that that I've heard through interviews and conversations and books. That this idea of trying to create normal in yeah. this um, this traumatic environment 
um, you know, whether it is in the home or whether it is in the library, they wanted to create some sense of normalcy. And I, I feel like you, you really captured that well with your art. I think it was like a good way to show their resilience, I guess, in, in terms of like, um, because these are people that are with their families and they'd want to make a very comfortable situation for them. And I feel weird speaking about it like I was there, but I was just, I was obviously seeing from the photos and, and it's pretty apparent, you know, that like, do you see the way families would still kind of recreate like home life despite, you know, the manner they're forced to live in and kids are still doing their homeworks, you know, and I'm sure in that small bubble, the mother would want to make it as close to home as possible. And so the, the normalcy is something that I think wasn't just something that like they fell into because that's what humans do. I feel like it was, um, they had to work for that, you mm -hmm. know, and they really had to strive to make that normal. I feel like even the pictures of them playing baseball or like just trying to like kill time, it wasn't just like, oh shit, you know, what's a great idea? We can play baseball. It's almost like, it's an active decision to swim against something, I think. Yeah, I mean, as I recall, Yaz did not need direction from me about this. Um, we both came from it with such a similar philosophical trajectory of like, we wanted to both highlight how beautiful their story was while being honest about the ugliness of the circumstances in which it occurred. And so every time I saw illustrations that Yaz did, it was hard to be critical because her work was so incredible out the gate. And she really did understand sort of the importance of how this story is told. I mean, and that is the root of this story is finding the beauty in all of this ugliness. Yeah. While still being honest about the ugliness. Sure. Right? Like the yeah, ugliness doesn't go away. away. Right. Have you been wanting to tell this story for a while? And and why did this moment in time seem like the right time to to share this story? Yeah, so no, it, it had never occurred to me to write their story as uh, my own story ever in the whole time I was writing children's books and trying out different ideas until uh, early 2017 when President Trump took office and his very first executive order was the Muslim or travel ban. And it was clear he was going to be using his time to enact as like brutal a white supremacist, supremacist agenda as he could possibly muster. And, you know, I was horrified and so furious. And I tried to think of what I had to offer in that period of time that was maybe unique. And I realized that our family has this beautiful story about not only the ugliness of those kinds of policies and the pain that they cause, but also the incredible resilience and the power of the people that they often victimize. And that was when I wrote the original text for Love in the Library. It took some going back and forth with my agent and editing it. and. Um, that that was when it came out and it was very much in reaction to current events because I don't think that without him sort of uh reinvigorating white supremacy the way that he has in our country I would have ever considered telling their story because it felt so much as though like it wasn't mine to tell hmm. when you were writing your author statement mm. Did you hesitate at all on what you were going to say? Or did you know from the inception that this needed to be stated, the comparison to our, our current challenges with raci racism and racially motivated legislation? Because I almost yeah. imagined like it, like a, a an email, I don't want to diminish what you wrote, but mm -hmm. you know, that, that heavily worded email that you're sending to a boss and you're hovering your finger over send. <laughs> 
<laughs> and then it's just like, F it. I'm going to, I'm sending it. It's going. Um, no, Candlewick has always been so supportive. So I've never been afraid of what I wanted to say around this book. They've been so respectful to give both Yaz and I the space to tell this story the way that we both felt it needed to be told. And so I wasn't afraid of sending it in. I did wonder if they might rein me back in. And instead the opposite happened. And the editor we were working with, Karen Lotz, was like, you know, you, you give this one mention to like the trail of tears that deserves like its whole own sentence. Like you need to break that out, you know, be a little bit more explicit about that. And I was like, no problem. <laughs> um, <laughs> When because of how this story was inspired to like actually be written as a children's book for me, its connections to present time were kind of its most important aspects. And I did feel like if I was going to tell their story, I had this greater responsibility because it's not my story to make sure that I was honoring not only their suffering, but the suffering of all the like 120, 125,000 Japanese Americans who are incarcerated with them. And I think one of the greatest disservices we can do to them is to pretend like what happened to them was an aberration. It was just like a little whoopsie doopsie moment in American history. And it's not. It's it's very much part of a tradition. Hmm. So will you walk us through this emotional roller coaster of receiving the licensing offer from Scholastic and then seeing the details? Like, did it all happen at once or was there this like like uplift and then complete floor dropping out from underneath. Yeah, there was, it was the latter, but it was like within seconds. Yeah. And so <laughs> I got an email from the subrights person in Candlewick Press saying, you know, Scholastic wants to license your book for this AANHPI collection that they're putting together. And they want Love in the Library to be a part of it. And I was so excited because I wrote this book explicitly to be used in schools. Like I wanted it to go into schools. And Scholastic has a unique place in the market where they have relationships with so many schools, direct relationships. They're the only publisher who does that. And so um, I was thrilled. And then they're like, but there's there's an edit and they need you to make if you want to do this because of you know this politically sensitive moment that we're in and this rising culture of book bans they want you to make these cuts and attached was a pdf and the pdf had this kind of brutal red line all the way through the whole paragraph that connects it to the present but they had also taken out the word racism from the note altogether which was um was the moment where i realized like oh there's like absolutely no negotiation here like there's this is a scorched earth <laughs> yeah and I, there's nothing to work with here. Like I, I could have potentially been amenable to rewording some of that paragraph so that it had smaller ideas or referred to specific policies, right? Like there were edits that could be made that I would respect and that I would consider. But cutting it all together was like, okay, so you want to pretend like this is a special moment in history that like this never happens and doesn't happen right now. That is a huge problem. But also refusing to call it racism altogether means we're not in a place where we're going to negotiate. Like th This ship has sailed. This edit is so heinous and so ugly. And um, I was furious. I was like immediately furious. And I immediately knew the answer was no. And I clarified with my sub rights person, like, is this mandatory? Like, is, is my offer contingent on it? And she said, yes. 
And so I drafted the blog post that I would put up about it and the tweet and I slept on it. Um, I talked to Yaz and she and I were very much in agreement on like, this is absolutely unacceptable. Like we're both furious. The answer is a hundred percent. No categorical. No, there's no way to talk about this. Um, and then the next day I talked to my editor who is also the president of Candlewick press. And so um, I love working with her, but I always, it's like weighted when I talk with her. Cause I know she's always got more important things to do. <laughs> she runs the whole company. So right. I was really afraid to tell her what I was about to do, but I wanted to give her the professional courtesy of a heads up that not only was I going to say no, and not only was I going to ask Candlewick to send them back this email where I kind of, uh, made clear how deep my disgust and rejection of this offer went, but I was going to be doing it publicly. And so she had about five minutes warning. Candlewick had about five minutes warning before I published everything. But they've been incredibly supportive and they were, she was from the moment I told her on that call, supportive. And so I've been, Yaz and I've both been really lucky that Candlewick is the house that we did this with. I always had his um, impression that like publishing, I've always assumed the big ones are oftentimes very just liberal and even sometimes maybe too neoliberal. Like I feel like it's almost like, um, first thing is to perform for each other you know what i mean <laughs> so that's my own if i had a cynicism it would be even to that bend and i was surprised that it was actually completely the opposite it was even like pandering to people that want books banned yeah i was i was pretty surprised i'm obviously i don't know it was also like i was also kind of not worried because it's maggie i felt like she it's like she had the wheel and i'm like i don't know if i'd feel the same way with any other person i feel like she knew how to handle that with so much more she was very vigorous about it and like very targeted and pointed and clear about her intention so i also felt like while i was angry or and surprised i also felt like it was in good hands like i, I it's not like i took the back seat but i was like oh thank god like maggie's on it you know and I don't, she probably doesn't have the luxury obviously because it's her own book and she needs to really you know kind of wield her own sword and then really fight for this but i i was happy that she was the one doing it what was the experience of hearing about the 650 plus librarians and educators writing a letter to Scholastic demanding an apology and a, a retraction of their demands? I was really heartened. I don't know what else to say. Like it was, the response has been a lot larger than I would have expected because there are real book bans happening right mm. now. Um, and they invariably tackle people like books from black authors books from uh queer authors and particularly transgender authors and any place where those identities intersect are kind of the most attacked but i think this might have been the first public evidence that we had that publishers are softening their blades behind closed doors to kind of accommodate this culture instead of defending the books and the authors who they say their voices you know that our voices are so important and that they support us and so um it meant a lot to me to see particularly librarians and educators with you know signing this letter and organizing themselves around it because that is not my personal network like when authors did it and i scanned that list so many of those people are my friends mm -hmm. and so it's like yeah of course we do because right. like we get drinks together. And if you didn't support me, I'd be so sad. <laughs> but um, 
but it meant a lot to see to see author uh, to see librarians and uh, it meant a lot to see everyone it was just more of a surprise to me to see the educators come out the way that they did and, and this is what i don't understand the voice is calling for banning of books and and editing our history these same voices that are influencing the, this trepidation that scholastic has they're loud but it, it seems like they're the minority and i don't know if this is like my no, <laughs> my california absolutely. glasses that i'm seeing this through you know like i have like a liberal <laughs> perception but it seems like they're not the majority but yet they're so loud and so powerful <laughs> They're well funded and really well organized and they're absolutely the minority is what I believe and seems to be true across the board, but it is really insidious like it's one of those things where you hear about them being really well funded by like kind of right wing interests and. I don't know what the best tack like counterattack is to something like that because this is not my specialty my specialty is writing books for children that are usually make-believe like mm. <laughs> and so um but i do know that the answer cannot be preemptively accommodating them i you know i'm jewish as well and that sets off like every single alarm bell that there possibly can be we already have sort of the permission structure for doing violence against certain types of people, particularly Black Americans, particularly queer and transgender Americans. People are already getting away with doing incredible bodily harm and to these people. And when you take away their voices to even have stories, you're building the permission structure for complete eradication. And so I, I am past the point of being concerned that I sound alarmist. Hmm. And I I don't know what the answer is, but I do feel like all of us who feel like, hey, we're the majority here. We need to be as vocal and as organized as the people that are working so hard to make sure that those voices disappear entirely. Yeah, the American Library Association put out a statement saying that more books are, are uh, uh, more bannings and more calls for bannings of books are, are happening than have happened in 20 years. Yeah. And in looking at your book, like it feels like 20 years ago, this book would have come out without complaint with everything with the artist statement. I mean, you know, obviously your artist statement would have been a little different because of what's happened in the last decade but um I don't think it would have been published by a major publisher or like you know like I don't know that that's true I think that the idea of calling it racism would not have been considered considered divisive yeah. 20 years ago because it was in 1987 when Ronald Reagan signed the bill authorizing reparations paid to Japanese Americans and you know he's infamously awoke uh <laughs> <laughs> like secret agent right. but uh um and he called it racism he said that's what it was it was racism plain and simple and i think that aspect of it clearly has been moving right but there has always been a long-standing squeamishness in publishing to publish the stories about people of color from our own perspective 
And so I don't know that this book would have been published 20 years ago. Um, and if it had, I think they would have forced it into being a simple love story in a way that Candlewick did not force us into doing now. Mm. I think there's a reason why like baseball saved us. Like even the title is optimistic sounding. And even though it's a wonderful book that tells a lot of really hard truths about incarceration, it's framed in something positive. And there, that was like kind of the standby children's book about Japanese incarceration for a really, really long time and still absolutely deserves to be read. I don't mean this to be a criticism of that book at all. But I think that one book was published. And so every publisher was like, there's already a book about that. We don't need more. Right. Even though there's 120,000 different stories and experiences. Yes. yes. Uh, as an artist, I'd, I'd love for you to talk about how important it is that stories like this um, that talk about history, um, but that also just talk about different points of view, different experiences, um, how important they are as illustrated stories for children to read, to really get that sense, to see the people in line with the tags on their clothes, on the identification tags, how important it is to see that um, and to connect to that as a visual medium in conjunction with the story. First of all, it was completely just like explicit to the story. So it had to, so it wasn't like something that I thought in my own creative decision it should be seen. I think it was like almost pretty obvious that I need to draw it, but I think for kids to see, I feel like it was a good step. I feel like we could even still be more vulgar about it in terms of like letting them know it's still happening. And it's hmm. like, it's not like, it, I'm even worried that maybe the palette might've made them look fridged in, in history in some way, but I think it's a good step. Anything towards anything that's a step towards that direction felt like it was very necessary. If anything, I felt like it was, I wish I kind of did it did more knowing now that like that could be interpreted a different way where it's like oh uh, let's let's hope the kids don't think America is still this scary place especially after the reaction of the scholastic thing I think even more so now I was happy that it was pretty explicit you know that like parents kids babies you know and, and like mom's arms are being mm -hmm. carried off into different buses and they have the tags you know and um and and different faces of anxiety you know, some of them are just, parents are all unanimously worried looking, but like the kids are like agitated, antsy, bored, you know, crying. I don't know, like, I, cause I can't, I've never, I don't think I've ever really experienced reading a book as a, like that as a kid. So I'm curious if, I don't know, I, I don't know the feeling, but I hope kids do draw from it in a way. I know that art for me as a kid was a big draw for stories. Like uh, I get, dude, I do get distracted if the art isn't great. It was important for me to make it visually interesting for children because I don't ever, I don't, I don't disrespect kids and thinking like, oh, they, we don't have to make it that sophisticated. Their kids are going to just make it colorful. I do think children do get sucked into the world when they're vivid and lush, you know, and I think making it vivid and lush and also kind of a disturbing image of society being sequestered just because of their race was a great combo to really pull them in. So I was very happy that on text, it was right there for me to like just flesh out. Yeah, I purposely wrote Love in Library as a picture book script, despite it getting rejected a few times and being told it would be better as a young adult novel. Because I know that children at the picture book age suffer from the suffer from state sanctioned violence, right? 
Like they bear the brunt of these kinds of horrible policies as children. And the children of those communities know that these things are happening. One of the things that, you know, I've kind of learned over time, and for me was important about this book was as a kid, I knew the story about Japanese incarceration, but I didn't know about all these other instances of state-sanctioned violence against different minorities and marginalized groups. I turned that fear inward and I was like, well, what's wrong with us? Why does our nation hate us? Like, what did we do? Like, I knew that I got made fun of at school for like having mochi in my lunch. Hmm. And I knew that one time I got beat up because my eyes are like Asian looking. So I was like, what? what is so wrong with us? And I I genuinely felt like we might be doing something wrong. And it wasn't until I got more educated and I got older and I realized, no, like we do this to different groups of people all the time. And there's nothing wrong with any of these people. There's nothing wrong with us. There's nothing wrong with like any group of people as a group, the way that sometimes these policies will make us feel. And so telling these stories without that context makes the children of those marginalized groups, forces them to experience it alone and to wonder what's wrong with them. And there's nothing wrong with them. There's nothing wrong with them. When we say like kids are too small to hear these sorts of stories, what we really mean are the privileged children who do not have to experience these marginalizations are made uncomfortable by hearing about them. That's who we're protecting when we say that kids are too sensitive for this stuff. It's not the kids who already experience it because knowing that someone else sees what you're going through is not a painful thing. That's solidarity. That's a way that you support them. It breaks my heart because I think it's such a disrespect to white children, <laughs> frankly, mm -hmm. who are smart enough to do this and who are being cheated out of a wiser, more resilient version of themselves. They're being sold a false bill of goods under the label of education and they deserve better. You know, recently I got a DM from someone on Instagram. She's like my age and she grew up in Idaho and she had never heard of Minidoka. She had, mm. had no idea that she grew up right next door to one of these incarceration camps. And I asked her, well, did you know about Japanese incarceration at all? And she said, well, kind of like I heard about it as like a side note in a lesson about Pearl Harbor. And to me, that was like a perfect encapsulation of what happens with the way that we usually tell these stories. We start with the state line of justification for why this was okay, and we do not delve into the stories. Hmm. And so I hope that people who were horrified by what Scholastic did in this particular circumstance, take that same horror and apply it to every time they read a news story about a police, like a police murder of a Black person. They're going to start with the state justification, and they're not going to go further than that. And we should all be deeply critical of that method of storytelling. We'd like to thank Maggie Takuda-Hall and Yaz Imamura for their time, their expertise, and their passion. Medium History is produced by Chapman University's Wilkinson College of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences and Past Forward. For more socially conscious content, visit pastforward.org or follow us at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you podcast.